Remember, Russia was 40% of my benchmark. Given what you understood about the true situation, weren't you concerned about an overnight collapse? I was, but what I did was to be a bit underweight in Russia relative to the benchmark. So if it suddenly collapsed, I would still do better than the benchmark. The day the market collapsed, I felt physically sick because I was only underweight by about 3%, and this was a situation regarding which I had developed enormous conviction over the past nine months. What did you do? Well, the next day, the market fortuitously opened up nearly 30%. So with the compounding effect, the market was back to about even with its price before the previous day's break. Why did it bounce back so much the next day? The Yeltsin rumor was denied by the government, and people who had missed out on the Russian bull market suddenly saw the previous day's sharp correction as an amazing buying opportunity. I felt an enormous sense of relief. Within ten minutes of the opening, I started aggressively selling off the Russian stocks in our portfolio. The market still finished that day up 24%, but the reason I was right to start selling that day was that the spell created by the senseless bull market had been broken by the previous day's price collapse. When markets are trending up strongly, and there is bad news, the bad news counts for nothing. But if there is a break that reminds people of what it is like to lose money in equities, then suddenly the buying is not mindless anymore. People start looking at the fundamentals, and in this case I knew the fundamentals were very ugly indeed. What happened after that day? It started to slide. By February 1998, it was down 50%. Normally, it might seem to be a good idea to cover shorts, or in my case reinstate long positions, after a decline of this magnitude. But I thought that the fundamentals remained extremely negative, and that by being long was a very bad idea. I was concerned that I might come under some pressure from my clients and colleagues to reinstate the Russian long exposure in the fund because of the market's large decline. So I wrote an internal analysis that detailed all the reasons why I thought the Russian market would still go much lower. In fact, it went down another 88% from that point. The title of Taylor's paper, The Tsar Has No Clothes, a title I obviously plagiarized for this chapter's heading, left little ambiguity as to the decisiveness of his opinion. Taylor's concluding comment was free of any qualifications, and a particularly gutsy call keeping in mind he was writing about a market that had already declined 50% in four months. Russia's problems are unlikely to be tackled until a serious ruble crisis jolts them out of their complacency. This leaves significant further downside for the equity market. We must remain underweight. At the time I wrote the paper, there was still a perception that as a country with thousands of nuclear weapons, Russia was too big to be allowed to fail and risk anarchy. As a result, international hedge funds were very long GKOs, ruble-denominated T-bills, which were yielding 40%. If short rates were 40%, there must have been real concern somewhere that Russia would default. Of course there was, it was obvious. The inflation rate at the time was only about 10%. If you're getting paid a 30% real rate of return, it tells you that the country is about to go bust. The rate was so high because no one in Russia wanted to buy GKOs. The Russians knew perfectly well what was going on, and they put all their money in Switzerland. You have to look where the smart money is. In an emerging market, the smart money is domestic, not international. 
Had the rate been extremely high even a year earlier? Yes, and it had been steadily trending up. So even as the short rate was moving up to stratospheric levels, Russian equities still went higher and then stayed at relatively high levels. Yes, and the market went up because there was a switching out of international money from Asian markets, which were much, much larger. What was the catalyst that finally broke the Russian market? In early summer 2008, Goldman Sachs managed the sale of about $25 billion of low-yielding, dollar-denominated Russian sovereign 10-year euro bonds to allow the Russian government to retire a similar amount of high-yielding GKOs. These euro bonds started trading down from day one and then continued to fall steadily. Investors who had been persuaded to buy those bonds started seeing immediate large losses and were pretty upset. Foreign reserves, which were only about $20 billion to $25 billion at the time, should have doubled after the Goldman Sachs deal, making Russia safer and increasing the attractiveness of the euro bonds, but they only increased by about $3 billion. This blatant anomaly forced international investors and the international media, after years of years of being in denial, to finally question the whole notion of the legitimacy of Russia's capital accounts data. Where was the cash going? It is likely that the money was received by senior government officials, divvied up, and then most of it went straight to Switzerland. There is a moment when the market realizes that the emperor has no clothes, and in Russia this was that moment. How come you still had such a large loss in August 1998 if you were completely out of Russia? Even though I was 40% in cash, the invested portion of my portfolio consisted of good companies with very high betas. Virtually every stock I owned had a beta of 1.5 or higher. Although I didn't have any of the crap in Russia that went down 95%, I did have stocks that went down 70 or 80% because they were widely owned since they were good quality companies. The difference was that these companies continued to produce 30% earnings growth per year, which meant that as soon as the market stabilized, their prices shot back up. In contrast, the earnings of the Russian companies evaporated, and their prices never rebounded. Being 40% in cash allowed me to avoid being a seller during the August crash, and made it possible for me to be a buyer in September after emerging markets, stocks had fallen sharply. As a result, when the market went back up, my portfolio rebounded with an insane beta. That is why I was able to finish 1998 slightly up, even though the index was down 30%. Presumably, if you were right on your extreme bearish call on Russia, other emerging market stocks would go down as well. Why then wouldn't you have been in low beta rather than high beta stocks before the break? Buying low-beta stocks is a common mistake investors make. Why would you ever want to own boring stocks? If the market goes down 40% for macro reasons, they'll go down 20%. Wouldn't you just rather own cash? And if the market goes up 50%, the boring stocks will go up only 10%. You have negatively asymmetric returns. It is what I call a pigeon and elephant trade. You eat like a pigeon and shit like an elephant. If you have a portfolio of boring stocks and want to make it produce equity-like returns, you have to leverage it up. If the portfolio then goes wrong, the loss is going to be massively asymmetric because of the leverage. I also think emerging market bonds are inherently unattractive. 
If all goes well, you get your coupon payment. But if the country defaults, you could lose all your money. So why would you ever bother? Do you always have high beta stocks? Absolutely. High beta stocks balance by cash or shorts. That has been true ever since I was a long-only manager. Boring companies never have the opportunity for earnings growth. And I like earnings growth, even though I don't like paying up for it. It seems like emerging market stock prices would be dominated by macro forces. How important is the individual stock selection? There are so many things in macro that are inherently unpredictable. If you get 50 macro experts in a room, you will get 55 opinions. You can get much more knowledge and predictability about a company. We talk or meet with every company we own every few months. Over a period of years, you can build up a relatively good understanding of what the company does and their ability to execute new business plans. Therefore, you can have a much higher degree of confidence about the prospects for company performance than you can about the macro outlook. The type of trade in which you can get the confidence to take a big position and stay with it for years is therefore more likely to be company-driven rather than macro-driven. Having said that, though, the macro outlook is still very important when making any given company investment decision. There are three things I like to see when I buy a stock. A favorable macro situation, a secular trend, and good company management. A good example of a trade with all three elements was our long position in the Russian mobile companies during 1999 to 2005, which was also one of the largest trades we ever had in Russia. The macro outlook was very favorable because the ruble had an 80% devaluation in 1998, which was coupled with a tremendous rebound in oil prices from their low of $12 in the same year. As a result of these two events, Russia went from an awful balance of payments deficit to an incredible balance of payments surplus. The resulting surge in foreign reserves led to a liquefaction of the Russian economy and the end of the non-payments culture people started getting paid real money. The resulting massive increase in purchasing power among ordinary people in Russia led to a strong secular trend supporting the trade. Mobile phone penetration was increasing annually by about 25%. Finally, I also liked the companies. They had good management teams who were happy to see you regularly. The companies were also transparent with very good accounting disclosure. Why did you leave Bearings? Bearings had a big marketing machine, and since I had outperformed the market by about 15% per year, the money was pouring into the fund like crazy. Having $2 billion in assets to invest in a tiny market, as East European equities were at the time, was insane. As investments in the fund increased, the negative impact of managing larger assets became more pronounced. I would have a good idea put on about 25% of the position, and then the stock would run away because other people would hear what I was doing. It was just awful. I felt trapped, and I couldn't close the fund to new investors. At the same time, I was frustrated by not having the ability to go short. I would frequently see companies that I wanted to short as the tech bubble expanded, but I couldn't do anything because I was running a long-only fund. Also, I wasn't getting paid much, which is typical for a long-only institution. Even though I was probably accounting for as much as 30% of the firm's total P&L, I was being paid a trivial amount. Putting these three things together, the negative impact of large assets on performance, 
the inability to go short, and the failure to financially benefit from my outperformance. By the middle of 1999, I realized that I wanted to run a hedge fund. However, I didn't want to start my own company and spend half my time being the CEO. I just wanted to be the CIO. So I joined Thames River, which is an umbrella company that provides the support structure for hedge funds. I went on the road in September 2000. Even though for the past six years I had the best long-only emerging markets track record in the world by a wide margin, we raised only $20 million. Why do you think that was? There were multiple reasons. First, we were in the middle of a bear market. Second, I had only run a long-only fund, so some investors questioned my ability to run a long-short fund. Third, the fund was focused on emerging markets, which at the time were considered to be the Wild West of investing. Fourth, we initially couldn't approach any of my former clients at Bearings for legal reasons. What was the transition like going from long-only manager to long-short hedge fund manager? We started the fund at the end of September 2000. There were various stocks I liked in Russia. I went only 40% net long, but the market was down about 20% that month, so I was down about 6%. Immediately I had investors calling, saying, You can't lose 6% in one month. I said, Fine, if you don't like it, take your money away. For the second month, we had only $100,000 of new investment. All the people who said, We can't come in on day one, but we will come in on day two, ran for the hills because I was down 6% in the first month. I stuck to my guns, and then I was up 8% in December, and we finished the quarter up 2%. I always tell my new investors, you will lose money investing with me at various points in the year, and it will always be unpleasant when it happens. This health warning is crucial so that investors have proper expectations. If someone comes to you and says they only invest in risky assets, but guarantee you limited downside volatility, they are either extraordinary geniuses, and there are probably only two of them on the planet, or they are liars. If you are investing in assets with an annualized volatility of 20% to 40%, you're inevitably going to take two or three decent hits to your NAV each year, and if you can't live with those hits because your clients are telling you that they can't live with monthly drawdowns, as soon as a position starts going against you a bit, you will sell it in a panic near the lows. You will then be psychologically impaired in regards to that position, which means you will never buy it back and therefore miss out on any subsequent upside. Every year that the Nevsky Fund has been running, we have had at least two intermonth losses of between 6% and 12%. What is your normal net exposure range? Between 20% net long to 110% net long. I believe that if you're trading very volatile instruments and you are completely out of the market when it reverses, then you will never get back in again. I will have some net long exposure even when I am bearish. For example, during the first quarter of 2009, even though I was still very bearish, I was 20% net long. As a result, when markets reversed to the upside in March, I didn't feel bad about buying more, since I had made some money on the rebound. It was mentally easy for me to double my net long exposure to 40%. If, on the other hand, I had been net short when the turn came, I would have been waiting for a pullback to cover my short, and the pullback never came. But aren't there times when the market is so negative that it makes sense to be net short? 
When the market is so bad that you think it is obvious that you should be net short, that's typically the time when it is all in the price and you should be buying. The people who annoy me the most are market strategists that work for brokers. They will recommend being aggressively overweight or being net short, and then they are wrong for two or three years. They are total bears or total bulls. And if they worked for a hedge fund, they would have had their capital wiped out many times over. Being in a position of running people's money, I can't take extreme positions and maintain my mental equilibrium. Managing money is real life, not some bullshit strategist fantasy world. When the market goes up, I try to capture 70-80% of the move. And when the market goes down, I try to lose only 30 or 40% of it. Being dogmatic in market positioning is why a lot of hedge funds, who did brilliantly in 2008 because they were short the entire year, then blew up in 2009. Taylor mentions a specific hedge fund manager. He is what I call a one-trick pony. I know he has a good track record, but I have no respect for him. He did one good trade being short in 2008, but then he stayed short the following year when markets were up 40% to 50%, and by the end of the year he was out of business. He did what market strategists do at a brokerage house, but he did it with client money. You can't do that. You always have to be pragmatic enough to move with the market. You always need to be facing in the right direction. You started your hedge fund in the middle of a bear market. How did you manage to do so well in 2000 to 2002? Taylor's hedge fund had an annualized return of 27% from its inception, October 2000, through 2002, compared with a return under 3% for the HFRI Emerging Markets Hedge Fund Index and net losses for long-only emerging market indexes. In 1999, I underperformed because I was underweighting tech stocks and high beta bubbles in countries like Turkey, which I thought had no value at stupid investment multiples. Of course, that didn't stop them from going up a lot more. Avoiding the tech crash, though, was one of the reasons returns were so good in 2000-2002, as was being heavily invested in Russia, which was rising from the ashes thanks to the stimulative power of a very cheap ruble and firm oil prices. Can you talk about 2008, which was your only losing year? In 2008, emerging markets were down 54%, and I was down 17%, which is exactly in line with what I tell my investors. Namely, in a bear market, I expect to take 30-40% to 40 of the downside. I was very bullish at the end of 2007. We came into 2008 positioned 85% net long in high beta stocks and 200% gross exposure. I was troubled, however, by widening credit spreads. It was reminiscent of August 2007 and suggested there were issues with the European banking sector, so I cut our exposure down to 40% net long. Aggressively selling down our positions in the first week of January was critical. We were actually up about 4% at mid-year. Help me out here. Why was cutting your long exposure sharply in early January beneficial? You were still net long and you were up for the first half year. Logically then, wouldn't you then have been up even more if you didn't pare down your position? A lot of the stocks we sold in early January were higher at the end of the second quarter, which would make our January sales look stupid since we never went back to that 80% net exposure level. But I will tell you where you are wrong. If you remember, in late January, 
Equity markets fell to new lows when the Sokgen rogue trader position was discovered and unwound. If we hadn't sold at the beginning of January, we would have sold at the bloody lows and would probably have been down 15% in January 2008 instead of only 5%. Not only would we have sold at the lows, but when the market then rallied in February and March, we wouldn't have had any position. Instead, because we had drastically cut our exposure in the first week of January, we were in a position to take advantage of the collapse later in the month. When the news about Sokgen came out, I thought that was great because now I knew why the market has been down so much and I was very comfortable buying into the weakness. If we had been nursing a 15% loss, we could never have taken the risk of buying on the break, even though it seemed like a great opportunity, because if we were wrong, we would be down another 10% and down 25% for the month. We would have been out of business. What was the primary cause for the 2008 loss, which occurred during the second half of the year? Our losses in the second half of 2008 came from our net long exposure. Although in the developed countries, GDP growth was flattening out and beginning to look ugly, in the emerging markets, everything was still booming. The earnings of all the companies in our portfolio were up sharply and valuations were very attractive. So whereas the fundamentals for developed markets suggested that you didn't want to have any exposure to anything, the fundamentals of the individual emerging market companies supported a strong net long posture. Given the contrast between attractive emerging market valuations and the high-risk global environment, we compromised with a moderate 40% net long exposure. After the Lehman collapse triggered major credit concerns, however, we reduced our exposure to 20% net long. Maintaining a 20% net long exposure instead of getting out completely helped us avoid getting whipsawed by the quick succession of extreme peaks and troughs in late 2008. During the fourth quarter of 2008, there were three rallies of approximately 15% to 20% that all ended up being followed by new lows. If I had dumped our entire position, then when the market rallied 15% to 20%, after it had been down nearly 40%, I might very well have thought, oh my god, this is the turn, and jumped right back in again. Then when the market was back to a new low a few days later, I probably would have thought that I had been right to be out of the market in the first place and sold everything again. There would have been a danger of getting whipsawed on the subsequent short-lived sharp rallies as well. So while our net long exposure resulted in losses during the second half of 2008, ironically, we might have lost more if we had gone flat. How did your investors respond to your first losing year? We didn't have a single redemption until October 2008. From that point on, our fund was used as a cash machine because, given my golden rule of investing in only liquid securities, we were able to remain open for monthly dealing on an unchanged basis, despite the crisis, whereas most of our peers were in distress and had resorted to gating their funds. Some of our fund-of-fund -fund investors had all their capital withdrawn by their clients, so they had to sell everything. After having had no net redemptions for the first eight years of the fund, between October 2008 and March 2009, nearly half of the assets were redeemed. Bizarrely, though within three months all the money that had left came back. As soon as markets stabilized, investors who had us on their watch list for years but were unable to invest because we were closed to new capital stepped up to the plate, forcing us to close the fund once more. 
Having been both a long-only fund and hedge fund manager, how would you compare the two? Managing long-only money is really easy because if you are up more than the index, everyone loves you, since a huge majority of the managers, 85% or so, underperform the index. And even when you lose, as long as you are losing less in relative terms, people still love you. Whereas if you are a hedge fund manager, when the market is up, investors want you to perform like the market or better, and when the market is down, they want you to perform like cash. Why do such a large percentage of long-only managers underperform the index? There are multiple reasons for it. First, management fees in emerging markets are relatively high, typically 100 to 200 basis points. Second, the high volatility of emerging markets leads to a bias of managers making poor investment decisions, such as panicking out of positions near the bottom and jumping into positions near the top because they are afraid of missing the move. Third, the composition of the emerging market index changes frequently, which leads to a negative bias when managers sell a stock that has been dropped from the index and is under widespread selling pressure. Fourth, and perhaps most important, emerging markets tend to behave more irrationally than any other market because a large percentage of participants in these markets are local retail investors. These local investors will often make decisions based on reasons that you and I would not consider rational, such as rumors and conspiracy theories. I think if you took a poll among local emerging market investors, two or three times as many of them would think that the World Trade Center towers were brought down by the CIA rather than by Al-Qaeda. When you are dealing with that kind of mindset, you can get very badly burned investing just on fundamentals. I thought that foreign investors were dominant in emerging markets. The thundering herd of foreign investors that can shift huge amounts of money in and out of emerging markets are dominant around cycle turning points, but over longer periods, the key price moves are influenced by local investors and the rumor of the day. You can have a situation where you go short because there is terrible fundamental news on a company, and then the stock keeps going up because of some wild, unfounded rumor that the son of the president is going to buy the company out. Why then don't people invest directly into the index if such a large percentage of managers underperform the index? There are several reasons why emerging market long-only funds have persisted, despite their appalling performance. One key reason is marketing. Look at the Templeton Emerging Markets Funds, for example, managed by Mark Mobius. Contrary to his media image as an emerging markets investment guru, he has in fact massively underperformed the index over the past 20 years. This fact hasn't stopped them raising tens of billions of dollars because he is always in the papers visiting and opining on emerging market companies and governments. The world of investment advisors is heavily influenced by media image, so they suck their clients into this stuff. Why do so many people continue to invest with him if the relative performance has been so bad? Because they're not looking at relative performance. Emerging markets have gone up a lot over time. So if, for example, emerging markets are up an average of 10% per year, and he is up 6% per year, they are just looking at the fact that their investment is up. Besides marketing, what other reasons are there for investors choosing long-only emerging market funds over emerging market indexes? The other reason is that even index funds in emerging markets underperform the index because of high fees. Why would you buy a guaranteed loser? 
Marketing guys hold out the hope that maybe you will pick one of the funds that outperform the index. Why did you recently decide to give back about three-quarters of your investor assets? The type of trading around our core investment positions that I do to control risk in the portfolio is very time-consuming and burns a lot of heart muscle. It means that I have to work from five in the morning until nine at night every day. I start the morning with the Asian lunchtime and work through until the U.S. close. That's not very sane, is it? The $20 million that I started with in September 2000 had grown to $7.5 billion by February 2010. And that was with the hedge fund being closed for much of the period. We had $3.5 billion in the hedge fund and $4 billion in the long-only fund. I had started with three people, including myself, and the firm had grown to 35 people. So I ended up with a big team and lots of clients. It had all gotten very large and very time-consuming. I realized that if I continued the way I was going, I was eventually going to kill myself. Last February, 2010, I decided to shrink my fund down to 20% of my former client base. Was it a forced liquidation? The only way we could reduce the number of our clients was to close the original fund and to simultaneously reopen a new fund, which is what we did. Last year, we gave our clients a one-year notice that the original fund would be closing. I wanted to give myself the flexibility to change my investment style. Change it in what way? In the original hedge fund, I had always committed to have at least 50% of my investments in emerging markets. If, for example, I didn't have any exposure to Asia, and Asia went mental, I would be afraid that my clients might sue me for incompetence. Whereas now, if I don't like Asia, I want to get a bit more sleep in the morning, I can choose to not have any exposure in Asia and get up later. What is the mandate of the current fund? Basically, I can do anything that I like. I will still have material exposure in emerging markets, but the point is that I don't have to be in emerging markets. I'm also trying to get away from that tyranny in hedge funds. Monthly performance. Previously, a large percentage of my clients were funds of funds who were driven by monthly data because a large percentage of their clients were driven by monthly data. You end up in this situation where you are obsessed with monthly returns, which can influence poor long-term investment decisions, even though it might make monthly returns look better. In the new fund, we will still report monthly returns to clients, but instead of having a monthly newsletter, we will go to a quarterly newsletter. I am trying to stop caring about what my clients think. I want to continue to invest money the same way, but have the freedom to take a longer view. For example, during the past two months, the performance of my core positions has been just awful. The market has gone up and they have gone down. But I feel I have the freedom to maintain a long-term investment focus rather than being overly concerned about the monthly relative performance. Out of curiosity, what are these currently poor-performing core positions? My biggest position is Apple. The reason I like Apple is that it is a company that is almost solely analyzed by U.S. analysts who think that Apple has limited growth potential because of the large market share it already has in the U.S. They fail to appreciate that only 300 million people live in the U.S. and that there are 6.7 billion people in the rest of the world. The market in which Apple has the highest approval rating is China which is a market with 900 million mobile phone subscribers. And currently, how many iPhones have been sold in China? Three million. 
Their unique operating system and excellent hardware give Apple a barriers to entry advantage relative to their competitors. I believe over the next four years, Apple will inevitably repeat the success it has had in the U.S. on a global scale. We forecast the earnings of every company we follow for three or four years out. I like to invest in companies that are cheap relative to their sector, but where we are forecasting earnings above consensus for the next few years. The catalyst I monitor for a stock to realize value is earnings surprise. In the case of Apple, we are forecasting earnings 50 or 60% above the street for the next three or four years. Although Apple is currently trading at 16 times forward perspective earnings for 2011, based on our forecasted level of earnings for 2014, it is only trading at 4.8 times earnings. Apple is one of the fastest growing companies in the world, with one of the best management teams, trading at less than five times earning based on our future earnings projections, and with $150 billion net cash by 2014, which is nearly half of its market cap. We currently have 20% of our portfolio in Apple. Given all those bullish fundamentals, why hasn't Apple performed better? One reason it is not performing at the moment is because it has gone up a lot, so investors think they can't buy it. But the main reason is that all that the analysts in the U.S. seem to be focused on is that the next iPhone may be delayed for a few months. They think that is bad. It is not bad at all. The reason Apple is so brilliant is because their execution is outstanding. Would they prefer if Apple came out with their next iPhone version early and did what RIMM, Research in Motion Limited, has done with the Playbook, the new tablet they have for the BlackBerry, which is one of the most suicidal pieces of rubbish ever put out? RIMM will probably go bust in the next three or four years. Why is that? Because they keep on having incompetent product launches. For example, they're bringing out a new tablet, and you can't even use it for email. And this is a product that is targeted for the corporate market? That is like producing a car with no engine or wheels. It is literally as bad as that. It shouldn't have come out for at least another year. The reason they rushed it to market, even though it is not ready, is that the Apple iPad 2 is such a big advance that it has helped Apple break into the corporate market. Now business people are saying, I don't want my BlackBerry phone anymore. I want an iPhone. RIMM was worried that if they didn't come out with competition for the iPad 2, they would lose the corporate market. But what they have done is guarantee that they will lose the corporate market by undermining every company IT manager who has argued for maintaining the BlackBerry over the iPhone. What RIMM has done is taken a knife and driven it through the heart of their business. I interviewed Taylor on April 30, 2011. On the previous day, Apple had closed at 350 and RIMM at $49. By the time I was proofing this text in the production process less than 10 months later, February 19, 2012, Apple was at $502 and RIMM at $15. How do you pick shorts? Shorts are more difficult. On the long side, I like companies that are cheap relative to their sector, but where I expect positive earnings surprises during the next few years. So turning that around, ideally, I would like to go short companies that are expensive relative to their sector and where I expect profit warnings over the next few years. The problem is that these bad companies have the greatest risk of being takeover targets. The emerging markets are full of sectors where multinationals want exposure. And the only companies they can generally take over are bad companies.
In emerging markets, in order to take over a company, you need to triangulate between the company, the government, and the regulator. It is much more difficult for a foreign firm to get government or regulator approval for a takeover of a local company that is doing well, or about to do well, because the authorities will fear being seen as selling out to foreigners. Whereas, if it is a bad company, the government and regulators are much more likely to approve the acquisition because it will be seen as saving the company and saving jobs. You can be long a good stock at seven times earnings and short a bad stock at 15 times earnings and some stupid foreign company comes along and pays a 50% premium to buy the bad company. So how do you walk that tightrope when the companies you most want to short are the ones most vulnerable to a takeover? Half to three-quarters of our shorts are stock index futures, so most of our net exposure adjustment is done through shorting markets rather than individual companies. How do you manage the shorts that are individual companies given the takeover dilemma you detailed? We only short bad companies that can't be taken over because they are owned by the government or their own pension fund. If the company is owned by the pension fund, it will never be sold because the workers will be afraid that the acquiring company would sack 20% of the labor force. What percent of companies are owned by the government or pension funds? In emerging markets, about one-third of all companies are government or pension fund owned. What is your risk control process? We are always in the most liquid securities. If we get it wrong, we get out immediately. We do a lot of research before we put on any trade. Not only do we forecast the earnings for a stock three or four years out, we also forecast the macro picture three or four years out as well. Can you really forecast that far out? Our macro views change quite regularly. You just have to be pragmatic. When you get it wrong, you need to get out immediately. I am wrong all the time, if I can be right 60% of the time. And when I am right, I have some big winners. And when I am wrong, I staunch the losses quickly. I can make a lot of money. Do you have any specific risk control rules? We have never had and would never use any form of quantitative risk control because all quantitative risk control models use historical volatility. It is like driving by looking in the rearview mirror. If you use volatility as a guideline and volatility suddenly increases, you will don't find that your risk was much greater than you thought, but by then you will already have been wiped out. That is exactly what happened to a lot of our managers in 2008. We also never used stops. So what do you do to manage risk instead? It is common sense. There are multiple requirements for a trade to take place. Do we like the company? Is it cheap? Does it generate cash flow? Do we trust the management? Do I have confidence in my projections? Is the macro outlook favorable? If a company meets all the criteria, then the next step is determining the appropriate position size. Given the degree of company and country risk, what do I think is the appropriate size position? If it is something very risky, a large position for me might be 1% to 5% of the portfolio. If it is a lower risk position in which I have very high confidence, the position could be as large as 20% of the portfolio, as is currently the case for Apple. I accept that if anything were to happen to Steve Jobs, the stock could go down 10%. That would be a 2% hit on my portfolio. I could live with that because I think the stock will triple over the next four years. If I have that big of a position in Apple, can I have another significant position in the same industry sector?
No, I can't because a negative shock event or development might be one that impacts the entire sector rather than being Apple-specific. In controlling risk, it is also very important to have people in your team whose opinions you respect, who can push back at your ideas in a way that will make you stop, listen, and test your own views. My partner, Nick Barnes, is crucial to me in this regard. Is there any common denominator as to why your projections for a stock will differ from the market's perception? Normally, it is because there is some kind of trend that I think is common sense, but that the market does not appreciate because it is extrapolating history instead of looking forward. For example, Apple has never had any consequential sales in India or China, so the street assumption is that they never will, which is imbecilic. As another example, during the fourth quarter of last year, Apple sold 7.3 million iPads. The average street forecast for iPad sales this year is 29.5 million units. All they have done is take fourth quarter sales of last year and annualize them. What they are failing to take into account is that Apple has revolutionized an existing product that was already way ahead of any competitor. Not only is it a much better product, but Steve Jobs decided to price it competitively instead of at a premium. Given Apple's economies of scale, no one else can even possibly compete. So we think they will sell 40 million iPads this year and 60 million next year. The street's forecast for next year is 40 million. It is not rocket science. It is just common sense. Everything we have talked about has involved fundamental analysis. Does that imply that you don't use technical analysis at all? Oh no, charts are very important. Once I have done the fundamental work and decided to buy a stock, I will first look at the chart before putting on a position. If the stock is very overbought, it won't stop me from buying, but I will start with a small position because there is a larger chance of a correction. If instead I put on the entire position and then the stock had a large correction, I would feel terrible. Say I really like a company and want to put 10% of the portfolio in it. If the stock is extremely overbought, then I might start with only a 1% position. If the stock just keeps on going up, then I am happy that I bought at least some. I will also be more willing to buy more because I bought part of the position at a lower price. Whereas, if I didn't initially buy anything because the stock was overbought, I would then never buy any of it, which would be a dreadful mistake. Equally important, if I decide to buy a stock based on fundamentals and then look at the chart to see that it has massively underperformed relative to the market, I will check who has been selling the stock. Such price weaknesses may indicate that all our fundamental research is worthless because management has lied to us. I also use charts as an aid to adding to positions. If I am bullish on a stock but don't have a full position, and then the stock breaks out on the chart, I will then go to a full position because the breakout confirms that the market is now seeing the same thing I am seeing. So you're basically using charts as a supplemental tool. Yes, the core is always fundamental. There is, however, one exception where a trade might be initiated because of charts. If a stock is extremely oversold, say the RSI is at a three-year low, it will get me to take a closer look at it. Normally, if a stock is that brutalized, it means that whatever is killing it is probably already in the price. RSI doesn't work as an overbought indicator because stocks can remain overbought for a very long time. But a stock being extremely oversold is usually an acute phenomenon that lasts for only a few weeks. So you're saying that RSI is only useful in one direction? Correct, which is oversold. If the RSI is extremely oversold, 
I will then look at the fundamentals to see if whatever has caused the stock to be sold off that sharply is already discounted by the price. If it is, then I will buy. Is your approach totally analysis-driven, or does gut feel ever play a role? Gut feel is actually crucial. If something isn't acting right, it is an indication that you need to go back and recheck the fundamentals. I currently have a partial short position in the IBEX, the Spanish stock market. I was thinking of substantially increasing my position. Then yesterday, several economic statistics were released. They were all awful, but the market went up, so I scurried away. You covered your position? No, I just didn't add to it because the algorithmic funds were clearly still in control of the market. It would be insane for me to have a large position because I could get destroyed before the market turns down. I have to wait before I short Spain aggressively. My gut feel was, ugh, this is not acting right. But I'm not going to cover my partial position because fundamentally I still think I am right. What advice would you give to stock investors? You have to be an expert in what you invest in. You need to understand why you are invested. If you don't understand why you are in a trade, you won't understand when it is the right time to sell, which means you will only sell when the price action scares you. Most of the time when the price action scares you, it's a buying opportunity, not a sell indicator. What do you consider the worst trading mistake of your career? My biggest mistake or pattern of mistakes was the way I traded the 2009 market. I thought you had a big up year in 2009. I was up 32% for the year, but I should have been up at least 45 to 50%. I am usually very good at riding big beta rallies. My failure to do so in 2009 caused me great angst at the time. Why did you trade differently in 2009? Normally, I let winners run and cut losers. In 2009, however, as a result of the post-traumatic effects of going through the September 2008 to February 2009 period, Talking to clients who are going out of business and seeing 50% of your fund redeemed is all very wearing. I got into the habit of snatching quick 10 to 15% profits in individual positions. Most of these positions then went up another 35 to 40%. I consider my pattern of taking quick profits in 2009 a dreadful error that I think came about because I had lost a degree of confidence due to experiencing my first down year in 2008 even though the loss was consistent with the expected loss given the magnitude of the market decline. I was constantly worried that markets were about to turn down again, particularly in regards to all the new investors who came into the fund in the second quarter of 2009. I was painfully aware that these new investors did not have the cushion of my previous cumulative gains, and I worried about losing money for them. I was also more aware of my size in the market, as volumes did not recover to anywhere near pre-crisis levels, whereas the fund size was back to pre-crisis size by July 2009. I was concerned about being able to exit in a hurry if necessary. Basically, all these things made my trading more short-term and hair-trigger, which is absolutely not my style. Normally, if I like something, I stick with it. I only stopped this damaging pattern in mid-2010 after I had given investors 12-month notice in March that the hedge fund was closing. This action had an immediate impact in reducing the size of the fund, as redemptions came through steadily. Also, by allowing and encouraging all investors, old and new, to exit at a high watermark, it made me feel that I had done right by all of them.
After this point, I relaxed and returned to my former investment style. In selecting emerging market equities, Taylor looks for three essential characteristics. One, favorable macro outlook. There are two key ways in which Taylor's macro assessment will influence the portfolio. First, Taylor will concentrate long in countries with the most positive fundamentals. Second, the global macro outlook can influence the total portfolio net exposure. For example, in late 2008 to early 2009, the very negative global macro fundamentals kept net exposure significantly lower than it would have been based solely on the individual company fundamentals. 2. Supportive Secular Trend Taylor looks for situations in which there is a strong fundamentally based secular trend that supports the trade. For example, the strong trend in increasing Russian mobile phone usage in the early 2000s was a key consideration that prompted Taylor to place a large and very profitable position in companies in this sector. As another example, Taylor's expectation that Apple's global market share of its products will trend steadily higher in coming years was the dominant reason why Apple was his largest holding at the time of this interview, April 2011. 3. Good Company Taylor looks for companies with attractive growth prospects priced at reasonable values relative to future expected earnings. He avoids what he calls boring companies, typically low beta stocks, regardless of whether they are at good values. Investors often miss the best stocks because they can't bring themselves to buy a stock that has already gone up a lot. What matters is not how much a stock has gone up, but rather how well a stock is priced relative to its future prospects. Taylor's largest holding at the time of our interview Apple had already experienced a very large price advance, and indeed it was the magnitude of this prior rise that kept many investors from buying the stock, despite its excellent fundamentals. As Taylor viewed it, however, the amount of the prior price gain was irrelevant, because based on his earnings projections for Apple, the stock was actually very cheap, notwithstanding its seemingly lofty price. It is important that your net exposure match your comfort level. For example, if you are uncomfortable being completely out of the market, then a flat position may actually be riskier than a modest long position because you will be much more likely to chase false rallies and get whipsawed. Taylor believes that having some long exposure during the highly volatile late 2008 to early 2009 period actually reduced his potential losses, even though the market declined. He reasons that if he had been out of the market completely, he would have been prone to being whipsawed by one or more of the period's false rallies, potentially losing more than he did with his modest net long exposure. The moral is that you have to know your net exposure comfort zone. For Taylor, the low end of this comfort zone is 20% net long. As another example of the benefits of trading within a net exposure comfort zone, a smaller net exposure may yield better returns, even if the market moves higher. For example, Although the market eventually rose to higher levels, by sharply reducing his net long exposure in early January 2008, Taylor was in a position to increase his long exposure following the price plunge later in that month. If he had stayed heavily net long, he might well have been forced to sell into the market weakness to reduce risk. The difference between being a buyer on market weakness instead of a potential seller more than offset the reduced returns implied by a lower net exposure for the period as a whole. Although trying to tightly constrain monthly losses may seem like a prudent approach, and indeed is for many traders, for investors with a long-term perspective, a constraint of keeping monthly losses below some moderate threshold could be detrimental.
Taylor believes that an obsession with monthly returns can adversely influence long-term investment decisions. If he is strongly convinced that a stock will move much higher over the long term, then in his view, cutting exposure on interim weakness to limit the depth of a monthly loss would be a mistake. Freeing himself from what he calls the tyranny of a monthly return focus was one of the main motivations behind Taylor's decision to return investor assets and restructure as a much smaller fund. In my experience, it is usually a mistake for a manager to alter his investment decisions or investment process to better fit investor demands. Taylor acknowledges the same perspective when he states, I am trying to stop caring about what my clients think. Taylor believes the best opportunities are those where you can identify a potential trend that the market does not appreciate because it is extrapolating history instead of looking forward. For example, Taylor anticipates that a growing global market share will result in Apple's sales far exceeding prevailing projections. Therefore, whereas Apple seemed adequately priced based on current earnings, a forward perspective PE of 16 at the same time of the interview, it was screamingly cheap based on Taylor's estimate of earnings three years forward, a PE of under 5. Investors often make the mistake of equating manager performance in a given year with manager skill. In some instances, more skilled managers will underperform because they refuse to participate in market bubbles. In fact, during market bubbles, the best performers are often the most imprudent rather than the most skilled managers. Taylor underperformed in 1999 because he thought it was ridiculous to buy tech stocks at their inflated price levels. This same investment decision, however, was one of the key reasons why he strongly outperformed in subsequent years when these stocks experienced an extended slide. Chapter 11. Tom Clagus. A Change of Plans. Thomas Clagus had it all planned out. Financial security was very important. He would get a degree in practical science and an MBA, a set of credentials he felt would ensure a successful career. And that is just what he did. After receiving a degree in chemical engineering, Clagus spent two years working in his chosen field, and then interrupted his working career to attend Harvard Business School. After receiving his MBA, Claugus returned to his former company, Rome and Haas, and worked his way up the corporate ladder. Within 15 years, he was manager of their European operations, and thought to be in line to eventually become the firm's CEO. He had financial security. His career was on an upward trajectory. He loved his job and the people he worked with. It was all going exactly to plan, except. Claugus had another passion. He was also an avid stock investor, who first became enticed by the stock market as a child. Claugus adhered to a discipline of living only on one-third of his income and investing the remainder. Through a combination of strong performance and the additional investment of his annual savings, his stock account grew steadily over the years. Eventually, Claugus found that he was earning more money from the stock account than from his executive position in the chemical industry. He decided to abandon his successful career to become a portfolio manager. He said it was the most difficult decision he ever made. His second thoughts about his decision and the vacillation that followed led to great personal angst as described in the interview. Claugus has realized a 17% average annual compounded net return over a 19-year period. His audited personal account did even better, compounding at 33% gross during the seven years prior to the fund's launch. During the combined 26-year track record, Claugus had five losing years. 
Two of them were very modest, 3% or less. The only significant negative years were 1991, when his account was down 12%, 2008 when the fund lost 25%, and 2011 when the fund was down nearly 9%. In each case, the subsequent year's gain more than doubled the loss, excluding 2011, for which the following year's return is unknown at this writing. For example, following the dismal 2008 performance, the fund was up 56% in 2009, its best year ever. Claugus is a natural contrarian. He often lags badly when others are making easy money and soars when others are panicking. This mirror image investing experience was clearly evident in the final year of the tech bubble, 1999, and its aftermath. Claugus actually had a small loss in 1999 when the S&P 500 was up 21%, but then scored large gains during the major bear market of 2000 to 2002. The one glaring exception in avoiding poor performance in a bear market was the financial meltdown of 2008, when Claugus lost money along with most everyone else. Even when Claugus is doing well during strong equity market years, the source of profits may be counterintuitive. As a case in point, Claugus 